Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. How are you, Doc? I'm uh, singing to happiness. Mate, you... <laughs> a little bit of an inside joke there. The the first time we tried to record the intro, Doc was singing in the background. That may or may not set a light of day, depending on how much he pays me to uh, to delete the file. Otherwise, <laughs> you never know. Keep an eye on your podcast feed. <laughs> you might get a special song from Doc. All right, mate. Let's uh, let's without further ado, let's get on with it. Now, I, I will say as I always do, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, so whatever's happened since, apologies for not covering it. If anything's massive has broken in the last couple of days, let's ask. A question from Mitch. Hey, Scott and Doc, loving the pod, long-time listener. Go on, Mitch, thank you. Quick one on ETFs. I keep buying the NASDAQ 100 ETF. The code is NDQ on the ASX because I'm finding it hard to find an ETF I like more. It's almost my entire ETF portion of my portfolio. Would you consider this undiversified or would you be comfortable with the heavy exposure to North America and tech? Cheers, Mitch. He leaves a hashtag with hashtag get Doc a better rate. So the, the hashtag game is strong with our listeners, Doc. I'm, I love it. It is honestly my favorite part of the mailbag is the inventive hashtags. There's more coming, by the way. Just uh, a quick heads up, including, here's a bit of a spoiler, a question, our first question from a non-human. I love that. So stick with that. All right. Uh, let's go back to Mitch, though. Hashtag get Doc a better rate. He's got an ETF portion of his portfolio. Now, again, we can't give individual specific advice, as we say every week. But Mitch has got a, a portfolio, which is his ETF portion. I don't say how big that is, the portion of his total, but it's all full of NASDAQ. Is that good or is it bad? Is he diversified enough or is he taking too much concentrated risk? Okay. So without knowing what the rest of the portfolio is, it's hard to say what I would think about the um, uh, the level of diversification, right? So like, yep. for example, NASDAQ is tech heavy. Uh, most of it is tech. And if the rest of your portfolio is also tech, then you know you're, <laughs> basically, a lot of tech. Then you're basically in tech, <laughs> yeah. right? Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, my portfolio is mostly in tech. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you, you know, it's different. I'm willingly taking that risk, um, right. and and whether or not you're willingly taking that risk is up is, is a question. And that's like, kind of a different question, right? Because you would say I'm not diversified, but I'm okay with that. And yeah, so exactly. The question is, would you consider it undiversified? Is a different question to is it a good idea? And there are two questions. We'll probably try and answer both, actually. Yeah. So, like, I mean, if if you're knowingly doing, like, I mean, somebody could technically just own. Nasdaq, right? right, and and because and and then you would say that it's diversified in the sense that well, you own hundred different companies, mm. approximately, uh, but at the same time, it would be risky in the sense that while well, you have a heavy tech exposure, the other risk factor to consider with Nasdaq one hundred would be that a bit like probably off the top of my head, something mm. like 45 percent would be like four or five companies, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Right. so that's, that's a pretty heavy concentration in some of the best companies on the planet period yeah. but that is pretty heavy concentration um so that that, that that's that part like if if you hold other things and if you hold other etfs and your this holding of nasdaq is relatively mm. heavy on that etf component but your etfs are like say 30 percent of your portfolio mm-hmm. maybe it's not a big deal so i think the, the, you know so there's a whole range of things to consider again there's the the it would depend on um on whether or not you know you're how cognizant you're of the risk and yeah. how you are okay with the you know right. riding or not riding right. the the you know the ups and downs that come of tech but yeah like i mean that's what i would say yeah i like that i would i would invoke so i own uh, some nasdaq etf by the way as well as some individual nasdaq stocks so full disclosure there um i, I for what it's worth i will invoke the the uh, dot bomb 
crash of 2000, only to say that the more exposed you are to a single industry, you know, when when the US market fell 20%, but the Nasdaq fell 80%, that was, you know, and it took, what, 15 years, I think, to climb back up that, that peak. Yeah. That's the sort of thing you can expect if, or sorry, you might expect if you are in an undiversified portfolio or industry or sector right now i'm not saying tech will do it again there's reasons why tech is better than it was then largely because most of it's only profits or at least more sales so i'm not i'm not drawing a straight line i'm certainly not saying i expect it again i don't otherwise i wouldn't own the nasdaq etf either but diversify lack of diversification as we've said in the past as we will say here's a spoiler alert on tuesday in our money hacks edition um yeah, you know, it's it does it does leave you exposed to more volatility, um, more potential actual capital loss, right? If you if tech is permanently valued lower in the future than now for whatever reason, and you don't have anything else in your portfolio, you would expose yourself to that. And as Doc says, if the rest of your portfolio is ASX tech, it is something that will. I mean, you're completely undiversified now. I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. I think you want to be careful about how. Um, expose you to different sectors. Doc is a risk tolerant, risk seeking investor who's really happy to take those risks because he thinks the upside's worth it. I think that's perfectly fine. I'm not as risk uh, seeking as Doc, but I certainly have a, a decent exposure in my personal and superannuation for portfolios to the NASDAQ ETF and other tech stocks. So I'm also happy to be in that space, but I'm very, very cognizant. I've had positions in my own portfolio, Doc, that were 40% of my portfolio in the past. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a risk seeker in terms of lack of diversification on a sector level, but I've certainly been in a situation where I've happily taken much more concentrated risk than other people should. Um, not because I'm a do as I say, not as I do person, just because uh, I've been doing this for a very, very long time and my risk tolerance and my emotional response to volatility and loss is actually uh, pretty subdued by now, pretty suppressed. So uh, maybe, maybe that's something a therapist can deal with. But in the meantime, that's okay for me. I wouldn't recommend it for other people. Um, yeah, like as Doc says, uh, Mitch, if, if your ETF portion of your portfolio is 10%, no big deal. If it's 95% and it's all NASDAQ, again, I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing. You just need to know and really be okay with, like genuinely okay. I've said this before, right? Mentally say I'm okay with that is different from emotionally saying I'm okay with that. Plenty of people found out during February and March this year that while they were, thought they were okay with risk, they really, really, really weren't. When the share market fell, they sold out in March desperate to avoid more losses only to miss out on the gains. So there's one thing to say, yeah, I'm ready for it. I mean, we all, we're all, humans are all arrogant, right? We all want to think we're better than we are. And this is one of those really, really serious look in the mirror conversations where you say to yourself, all right, I want to believe that's me, but really, am I really, really okay if that happens? As I said, I, I have become that person over 20 plus years of investing. If you're not someone who's had that experience, just be a little bit careful, right? Know yourself first. And if you're not sure, I would say just be a little bit conservative err on the conservative side until you know for sure you can deal with it because if you have a terrible freak out moment and sell exactly the wrong time you may well crystallize a few years of losses in one go that might take a bit of time to get back out of yeah i was just going to add one quick thing and i'll not then you know one of the things is we can deal with it but how you deal with it also is important right i mean mm. if, you know if, if your portfolio is down 40 yeah, and you yeah. don't do anything still right but yes, you, yes you still yeah, feel right. immense pain yes and 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 therefore do you want to it's also a question do you want to feel that pain yeah, and are you right. okay being you know suffering right yeah, so i mean yeah, those point. are things you have to think about no that's a that's a really really good point mate because yeah again it's even you know there's a, there's a process right the the, the path of enlightenment at some point you, you you still manage to not do anything about it but it still hurts like hell all right uh let's go to the next question from sam a really good question from sam doc i i have a feeling you might um you might have a view on this but let's uh let's see uh sam says morning fellas i've got a question for the podcast I've been reading all the classics on investing. Ben Graham, Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, Joel Greenblatt, all deep value investors. 
Now, I will say something at this point. I don't think Peter Lynch would qualify as a deep value investor, but certainly probably not a hypergrowth investor of some like today. So um, maybe maybe in hindsight, maybe he looks like it, uh, but he certainly was happy to pay up for growth. He had some really high PE stocks in his portfolio. So uh, for what it's worth, just, just worth um, holding that out there. But he says, it's left me wondering, how the hell could these guys invest today? The high interest rates that made bonds attractive feel like a distant relic. The margin of safety on stocks has all but disappeared at current PEs. It makes me think, would they sit out right now, as Warren Buffett has? For most, though, we want to put our money to work to beat inflation. What books, etc., would you recommend that take today's metrics, valuations, and tech biotech into account? Are there any must-read authors or fund letters, etc.? A long question, but I'm currently reading The Intelligent Investor, which is Ben Graham's book, and all the bond talk, etc., seems so irrelevant. Cheers, lads. Thanks in advance. Good, good, good question, Sam. Love it. Look, I think getting started with the with the classics, with the the, the fundamental underpinnings of of investing, the concepts behind investing, super, super important. But as you say, you know, the the, the way the business has changed since then, I don't think it makes them irrelevant, but it certainly means you have to take the theory and then find out how best to apply it in today's market with today's businesses, metrics, interest rates, as you rightly point out. So with that, Doc, I'm going to throw the hard question to you. Um, are there any particular books, any particular fund managers, any particular authors, any particular followers on social media? How do you, how do you take your investing kind of um, principles and basics and then use sort of some more currency to help inform the way you approach investing today? Okay, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be promotional here, <laughs> but. Uh, but I'll say uh, I would put all those books aside from the greats and put, you know, put Warren Buffett and his letters aside uh, and I would go to one book, The Motley Fool Investment Guide <laughs> uh, by David and Tom Gardner. I'm not sucking up to my, uh, oh, yes, you are. Uh, my CEO to... and our co-chairman. Is it, uh, is it salary review time? Must be. Oh, it's, you know, I haven't gotten a raise in a while. So <laughs> but but honestly, I think um, that that's the book. I, I would read that book first. Right. Um, I, I think here's the thing with the, you know, intelligent investor and all. I think those books are now pretty dated, and I think they basically don't work. I think Peter Lynch's book actually, you know, One Up on Wall Street is still very very mm-hmm. relevant. Um, I'll throw in Phil Fisher too, an old one, uh, but. Uh, Beating the street? No. What is it? Um, common stocks, uncommon profits. Com- yeah, common stocks and un- uh, uncommon profits. Yes. I think that's another one. Yes. Uh, Fish, like you know, very few people have records like Fisher and Lynch. Yep. So I think those two books are still. I think Christopher Meyer's um, uh, Hundred Baggers is is another okay. great book nice. to look go. at. And, uh, those are still old, but they have. I think they've got a lot of value there. And then I think the one book that I would recommend Warren Buffett read uh, as well uh, is um, uh, Capitalism Without Capital. And this is more of an economics book, but uh, written by economics, uh, Haskett, I think, mm-hmm. out of the UK. The, the, I think th- these books, these books, I think, give you a more modern context into what's happening in the sort of the low interest rate environment, mm. the, the, the innovations driven, you know, technology driven markets. I think the biggest change that you observe from the Ben Graham days or the Buffett days to now is you can actually build companies without really investing dollars in mm. the sense of like mm. building factories and things like that. Yep. And I think that has changed a lot of things. Um, so it's the internet, the cloud, you know, 5G, you know, the yeah. iPhone, the app store, those things have really changed how business is done. Yep. Um, so I think, I think that, that context, I think the Buffett letters are really good for um, for underpinning. I think um, the investor mindset. Yeah, great. so I think that's if you can abstract out 
if you can abstract out and not be a Buffett investor in the sense that I want to buy moats, because if you want to buy moats, you're buying very mature businesses. But if you can take that and think about the the discipline and mm. think about you know how he thinks about long term, how, how he thinks about you know, many ideas like brands, I think those mm. things, mm. I think, are timeless classics. Um, so, so there's again, I think that it's a question of just being right about the time. So I think that that's what I would say. Nice one, dude. I like that a lot. Um, I completely agree, actually, for what it's worth. I think, you know, if if you think about the, the where, where, you know, the, the, the Buffets, Lynch's, and Fishers, I think for me, the, the benefit of those three guys is really underpinning the case for long term investing. And in very different ways, um, but the, there is some sense of how to think about investing, how to invest, how to think, you know, think about volatility, keep your mind on the job. Even, Sam, I will say for what it's worth, the idea of a margin of safety, I don't think it's not, it, I don't think it's invalidated by. The changes. I think what it does is it just you have to think about how you how you approach it, right? So Buffett's margin of safety would largely come from a a calculation of value and then a discount from that calculation. I don't think that's necessarily miles away from the concept that he's trying to that you can use today. You just don't do it exactly the same way, right? So the idea of margin of safety is simply saying, well, it could be this, but I'm not so sure that I want to pay up and, and assume perfection in my own forecast, right? So let's take Kogan, right? I think Kogan could be X size in ten years time. Buffett's never going to buy Kogan, but you can simply say to yourself, right, if it's going to be X size in 10 years' time, I'm going to change, I'm going to say, well, you know, I won't buy unless it's going to be, you know, I get a good price at half of that. Let's, like, I think it could be, and let's pick, I don't even, I can't even contextualize the numbers, Doc. Let's say it's going to be a billion dollar business in 10 years' time. Well, if po- it's possible, but maybe, maybe it doesn't. So I don't want to, I don't want to buy at a price that, that it has to be a billion dollars for me to make money. I want to, I want to buy at a price that I'll make money if it gets to half a, half a billion. So if it gets to a billion, then I've got even more. So that's the same margin of safety concept, right? And I think this is where people can be too literal. And a lot of Buffett particularly is taken super literally, right? The whole, you know, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't, you know, don't forget rule number one. He never meant none of your investors will ever lose money. He just meant invest conservatively so that your portfolio doesn't go to zero. Now, you know, it, it, you can take any of those things super literally. And maybe even at the time they weren't intended literally. But I think if you take some of those ideas, again, Peter Lynch's idea about Scuttlebutt, for example, I used Kogan as a as an investor. I used corporate travel as a uh, you know at a previous job. The Scuttlebutt method still works really, really, really well. It might be steelmakers, and it might not necessarily even be retailers. But again, the, the software, the hardware, the the services, the technology you use, those things again, same sort of idea. So I would I would absolutely still read those guys. I would just take the approach to say, right, how can I apply that to the industries and businesses and the circumstances that exist today? I think that's that's well and truly worth doing. Um, I agree with Doc about uh, capitalism without capital. I think that's a really good one. I haven't read 100 Baggers yet. It is on my list of reads, so do that. Um, man, what else? Uh, I think, yeah. Well, are, there any, are there any followers on, on social media? Any, any particular people you follow who, have, who are great on tech? Yeah, so uh, there's a um, there's a partner uh, from Benchmark uh, called Chetan uh, Putagunta. I, okay. I'm probably getting the name, but if, you know, if somebody goes to my feed, you'll see, uh, they will see that I uh, retweet quite a bit. What I like nice. really about him is uh, he uh, tweets a lot of facts about uh, tech, mm-hmm. and he reads a lot of transcripts. I think he not so they, you know there's a venture they're, they're investing in like in a business that are pre public, right? But mm-hmm. they they also he also follows very closely what is happening in sort of the software world, mm. in the tech world. Uh, from big companies to small companies, and he would he would really find nice little nuggets. You need, probably, if you need to know one thing from the Microsoft earnings call, it'll be that one thing that he has pointed out. So mm-hmm. it's it's a really easy, straightforward way of getting very good dump. On, of course, there's one person's viewpoint that yeah, you know, he's amplifying, yeah. but I think he has a really good read of what's going on 
uh, how technology is evolving. So I, I really, I actually pay a lot of attention to what he has to say. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's, there are a few others, I think, that you can read, but I think he's really, really good. There you go, Sam. Hope that helps. Um, really, really good stuff there. So yeah, I think, I think you know, take the concepts and apply them your way. Um, don't don't distort them. Don't, don't completely undermine them. But you know these guys are these guys are done very well for a good reason. Some of it is industry specific. Some of it is top point in time. Others of it is stuff that you can actually take. Even they don't be taken. I mean, you know, Buffett himself said he doesn't do tech. Doc does tech. Does it really really well? I don't think it necessarily needs to be an either or conversation, right? You can take what you learn from Buffett and apply it to tech in the same kind of way. Well, let's move on, mate, to a question from David. Hi, Scott and Doc. I love your work and the honest and transparent approach you bring to stock market investing. Thank you, mate. I heard your comments regarding gold on the mailbag edition from 12th of July. I agree that in the long term, the market is likely a better way to build wealth than gold. The problem is that right now, there's a sense the share market is getting a little ahead of its reality and is ripe for a reality check. Anecdotally, I'm hearing a lot of people claiming right now cash is king. Last week, my kids' maths tutor, my accountant, and my business partner all independently said they'd pulled money out of shares to cash before the market tanks again. I presently have more than half of my net worth in shares and I'm happy to ride the roller coaster to an extent. But I do want to keep some cash available for picking up bargains in any short-term fire sales. The problem is nobody knows if and when such a correction will occur. Cash in the bank is paying such poor interest and will do so for a while. Money in the bank seems like opportunity lost. When central banks are effectively printing money and dropping rates, doesn't gold act as a good portfolio insurance strategy? Shouldn't the value of gold be viewed not as a competitor against shares, but as an alternative to cash in the bank right now? Gold has some tailwinds in an uncertain world. If the stock markets fall, the gold will often rally. What do you think of an allocation of gold if the only alternative is cash in the bank? Full on and leave poor Doc alone. Social media is overrated. David, are you low? I'll take that as a comment, as Tony Jones would say. Uh, I... <laughs> I can't leave Doc alone entirely. That's part of the fun of the podcast. But yeah, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. All right, mate, I'll let you have first go at this one. Uh, shares, gold, cash. Is gold at least an alternative, if not to shares, to cash in the bank? Um, well, I don't have a view on this really. I mean, the, the problem I have with gold is the price of gold really depends on supply, cost of production, uh, demand, and you know all of those things that, you know, and there's, there's sentiment as well. So mm. it's, it's really hard for me to know what, gold is going to do and if i don't know what it's going to do then how is it a hedge if like <laughs> right. i mean it's not really a hedge for me yeah, yeah. if i had to hedge i really i if i had to hedge i would buy put options on an index um because that is a hedge you know if i want to hedge mm. against a 10 percent decline i wouldn't buy put options three months out um on on that on, on an index yeah, right. that I think you know, uh, yeah, I, th- I want to protect my portfolio against, and and and, and that's most a lot of professional investors do that hedging. I actually mm. used to do that. I've stopped doing that largely because you do you hedge ten times and you're right once, <laughs> yeah, and effectively right. you pay premium right. uh, all those ten times to yeah. get the one time benefit. Net net, yep. you're neither here neither there if you can tolerate the volatility. That's that's that. Um, if you've got cash, I mean, cash is really. A hedge as well, right? I mean, in, in portfolios that we run, uh, or at least I run, um, keep you know, in one portfolio, I've got a decent amount of cash sitting. And when I say decent, it's like 10% or so, and I call it cash basically a hedge. Um, that's another form of hedge, uh, that you can have. The there's another form of hedge that you can have, and it depends on really how your portfolio is allocated. Well, let's assume that your portfolio is allocated mostly to uh, the ASX, right? So 
then if you own an index ETF that is effectively a mirror of a dollar-denominated ETF, right? right? So, for example, NASDAQ's uh, 100, then that's a form of hedge too, at least against the local uh, dollar. Because if what happens is if our economy really suffers, our dollar basically goes down right. relative to the US dollar and, and you get a hedge. So it's kind of currency geography hedge. It's a currency geography hedge. Right. But the, the currency hedge actually works really well in that, in that context because you know typically um, commodity currencies mm. react that way, right? Yep. Uh, yep. So, you, you know, so that's another sort of hedge. There's a lot of different ways to hedge. Ultimately, I think... Hedging the the best hedge is diversification. Mm. The second best hedge is to have some cash to deploy. <laughs> uh, everything else is very cute, and unless you have a specific reason, like if if you want to hold, for example, a, a Nasdaq 100, then y you basically believe the Nasdaq 100 is going to give you market beating returns. Plus, you're getting some hedging right. be benefits on the side. Right. That's okay, but I would not buy Nasdaq 100 just for the heck of uh, getting uh, some hedging, if, if if that makes sense. So that's so broad different levels or ways of thinking about hedging i'm going to i'm going to take a different oh, the same view as you really are fundamentally doc uh, maybe a little bit harsh uh, more harsher than you did um david I, I take your point here's the thing right portfolio insurance or portfolio hedging is really a volatility smoothing strategy and this is why it's really really important right because if so let's say the share market is going to double over the next five years let's just let's, and, and like well, let's say 10 years to make it so i'm not trying to over egg the pudding here right let's say i double in the next 10 years now if I could, if I could invest now and, and get that double, I take the double, right? I put hundred dollars down, and get two hundred dollars back in a decade. Now, I hope I think it'd be quicker than that, but let's just assume that's what's going to happen. Now, I could, and, and during that next decade, I could there could be two thirty percent falls on the way to that double. So it falls in two thousand and twenty-five, and again two thousand twenty-eight. Again, just pick some numbers, right? Now, I could have insurance right for the next ten years, and as Doc said, you could buy put options, you could buy gold, you could do whatever, and I could have those two thirty percent falls be less. Maybe it's only fifteen percent for me personally, because I've hedged, right? Maybe it's 10, maybe it's even plus two, whatever the numbers are. If I've actually died, literally buying this for insurance, that only pays out sometimes, the other eight years when the market doesn't fall 30%, I'm costing myself money. It is very, very, very likely in my view that over the next decade, you end up with 180 bucks rather than 200. And yes, you've hedged. Yes, you've got insurance. Yes, you've helped yourself with volatility. You actually end up with less money. That's, that's kind of the problem with insurance policies, right? Like, you know, unless there's no free lunch in those in those hedges, there just isn't. Otherwise, it would be priced out. The market's pretty clever, and particularly in those zero sum entities, where if I'm gaining, you're losing, or vice versa. The idea of those things is they should be pretty rationally priced most of the time. Um, now, maybe you get lucky. The one time you hedge, maybe you win, or the five times you hedge, maybe you lose each of those five, and you miss the other one, which you know you should have been hedged. Um, certainly, I know people who tried to hedge years ago, stopped doing it, and the market fell this year, and they weren't hedged at that point because they'd already given up. It's, and they, by the way, so they, they paid the insurance policy for five years and then didn't have the insurance when they needed it. Um, it, it. You know, I think honestly, over time, if you can stomach the volatility, I would absolutely forever be unhedged. I just don't see the value in being hedged for a reason. As Doc says, even if you want to have some diversification, get that diversification stuff that's going to go up rather than, rather than stuff that's going to do well if the rest of the portfolio does badly. All you're doing is smoothing volatility and you're paying for the privilege. Now, if you need to, if you're an investor, <coughs> excuse me. If David, you're an investor or one of our listeners is an investor who just can't literally summit the volatility and it's the only way you can stay invested is to have a hedge, then go for it. If you, you know, but just recognize that in almost all cases, you're accepting a lower total return for less volatility, which is fine. And that's completely okay. Just realize that's what you're doing. So while you want to be either comfortable or feel smart that you've got something to go up when something else goes down, that can feel better and that might be enough, but it's almost going to almost certainly going to cost you over the long term. Is that fair to say, Doc? 
I think that's correct. That's I think I, th- I think th- those are all. Uh, I completely agree with them. Uh, on the same token, by the way, I'm, I'm yeah, unlike Doc, a little bit. We're a little bit different. I'm actually almost always try to be fully invested. I'm actually not. I'm actually, about funny enough to your point, about ten percent of my portfolio is in cash right now, just because I've added money and have bought anything recently. Um, I've been getting to buy for weeks and just for different compliance reasons, other things haven't haven't done it. Um, so you know, I can I can be often in more cash than I'm comfortable with. I would again for me, I'd rather not have the cash. I don't want the hedge. I'd actually rather take the big fall if I get the big gain. If I was fully invested. Uh, in, in February and March when the market fell, I would have been able to get the full rally, right? I actually missed out on some of that rally because I was in cash when the market jumped 35% and now I feel like I've you know missed some of the trick. Now, it doesn't, doesn't kill me. I'm not too worried about it. But again, the kind of idea there is um, by all means, be you know be diversified, have some cash if that's what you want. Just recognize again that over time, cash will underperform shares. And so if you're holding cash for the whole time, you ask to some degree, there's a little bit of a handbrake on your returns, a little bit of, a little bit of lead in the saddlebags that maybe you don't need to carry. Fair to say, dude? I think so. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. How about we go to a question from Bernard. Now, Bernard's got an uh, interesting question to ask us, mate. Bernard says, hello, Captain and Doc. Okay, Bernard. I continue to love the podcast and Motley Fool services. Nice work. Well done. Thank you. Your answers to my previous questions have helped me and my portfolio returns a lot. Thank you. Well, you're welcome, Bernard. We, we do hope to help all of our listeners and all of our members uh, improve their portfolio returns. So if we've done that, hopefully we're doing the right thing, mate. Thank you. He says, I'd appreciate your perspective on something that's bugging me i.e. the pedestrian returns from my industry super fund as compared to my full, full self-managed portfolio. Both have about the same invested amount. I went full, full only two years ago, i.e. buying monthly full subscriptions, EO, that's Extreme Opportunities, SA, Share Advisor and Rule Breakers, which is one of our US services, and I've only been actively investing for three years. So I could be experiencing beginner's luck, a lack of perspective, newbie's no idea, or a fool's paradise. But when I compare my full full portfolio returns, about 20% per year, yes, I know, only in the last two years, with my industry super funds of about 6% a year, I'm worried about these low returns going forward. With about 15 years until I can retire, barring any unforeseen problems, that's a lot of underperformance to soak up. How can I, with the fool's huge assistance, be beating the pros? Could I, should I consider starting my own self-managed super fund? I don't have and won't have anytime soon anywhere near the million dollars, which is what I hear you need to make an SMSF effective. What do you think? All right. Uh, Joe, uh, Doc, in terms of the the full portfolio versus industry super fund or something else, what say you? Should he take the whole thing and go full, full with his super as well? Well, again, I wouldn't tell him what to do um, <laughs> uh, because I can't. Uh, but here's the thing: like, I'd guess the you know the industry super fund has a lot of beautiful banks and uh, <laughs> a couple of beautiful uh, uh, you know grocers, and these are businesses <laughs> that are not really growing. Right. So, I mean, um, it's not that there are no growth businesses on the ASX. There <laughs> are. It's just not those top. 30, 40, 50 businesses that you're looking right. at. You've got to look outside that to right. find uh, <laughs> growth on the SX. I mean, that's yep. what I mean. And then there, you know, industry superfund might be investing in uh, uh, commercial real estate and you know other things and you know mm. unlisted assets. I don't know what they do, but I'm guess- guessing there's all these other things that impact 
returns. Mm. Um, they might even hold a portion in cash, depending upon the strategy that one has, in I guess, selected. So that's that. Um, the I think the requirement. So I'll answer the question differently about the SMSF. Mm. The answer that you need a million dollars to start your SMSF. I think uh, that is. I think too high yep. in my opinion way too high uh, way too high um, you know I have an SMSF and I can tell you it doesn't have that kind of money <laughs> in it um, yet well yet <laughs> hopefully get there someday um, but but the the my own experience says you could do it with 200k yeah there, there's more compliance cost uh, you know the audit cost and all those things with, with doing it but I mean, if somebody can compound at 15 and you're getting six, that's mm. the 9% is, um, it's a big difference. 9% compounded over like, you know, um, 10, 15, 20 years is mm. a huge difference, mm. right? But of course, there's a lot of commitment involved in, in doing it in a way you have to be invested in the thought of actually doing it itself, right? Yes, which yeah. is which is very important. And it's a really a commitment that one yep. has to have. So... Yeah, like I mean, one has to consider the cost of doing, the process of doing, the the mental cost of doing it, versus outsourcing it to someone um, uh, for it to be done. So that that's what I would say. Uh, so you don't need a million bucks, in my opinion, Correct. at least to do it. Is is what I would say. Yep, uh, I'll I'll absolutely echo that. A couple hundred grand is about as much you need, and even less than that, frankly, if you want to build your portfolio over time to a decent size, um, starting with a slightly uneconomic portfolio but billion you know when doc ends up with 15 million dollars in his super fund um he'll be glad he spent an extra couple of dollars early on because he's now got a super fund he could build himself and the compound returns well and truly justified some of the you know the, the prices early on and i think that's where in the past i've been guilty of this mate of saying brokerage should be x percent or your fee should be x percent of your portfolio and i think that's kind of right at a, at a basic level but if you can if you can compound whatever wealth you're creating meaningfully over time and and start by starting with the right place in the right way um, those early fees can well and truly pay themselves multiple times over, right? If I get to pay, if my 20 buck brokerage on a $500 trade is high, and it is, if that starts me on a journey to a million dollar portfolio, then that $20 out of my million dollars is, is not much at all. So, you know, there, there is, you know, I've been, I've been a little bit arbitrary on that before, and it's, it's easier to be arbitrary because it's easier to sell a message, but given we've got a bit of a longer form opportunity here to have a chat, I think that's where I'd probably say it's worth just having to think about how that might net out because you can, you can, I think, in particular, um, do do you know better with that in terms of the way you invest here's here's the thing this is also Bernard something that's really worth thinking about right doc mentioned the banks it's not only just that right if you're in a balanced fund you're going to be having property cash um, other you know, bigger businesses doc says all the sort of stuff compiled in now that's not necessarily a terrible portfolio or a terrible fund uh, approach if you take that view now super funds as a rule, We'll have much less volatility than the average portfolio because my personal portfolio is 100% shares. My SMSF is also 100% shares. Most SMSFs will be, you know, or sorry, most industry funds will be, I don't know, 40% Australian shares, 20% international shares, 20% profit, 10% cash, and whatever number I haven't come up with in between there. If I'm 110% or 90%, then fill in the gaps. Um, but, you know, that that very idea is, you know, it's, it's really important. One, they are they are conducting a very, very different strategy. And so nothing wrong with industry super funds as an approach. I like them much more than retail super funds for what it's worth. But in terms of the way you should expect lower returns, you absolutely should expect lower returns from the premixed options because they're not trying to maximize the yearly return or even the total return. 
They are trying to give you a smoother ride because, frankly, most members need that, right? My mother, when she had a uh, super fund, would come to me sometimes and say, my super's gone down this year. How, how can it go down? What, what, what am I, why am I contributing to super if it goes down sometimes? And that's not a, that's not a slide of my mum. That's just someone who isn't an investor, doesn't listen to podcasts like this one, and, and kind of thinks, well, hang on, super's supposed to go up. Why would I bother contributing if it goes down sometimes? That's that's you know The average member of a super fund is really, really different to the average listener to a podcast like this or an average member of one of our services. I would say inside industry super, I, would, I wouldn't rush away to an SMSF, by the way. If you want to and it's right for you, as Doc says, do it. But if you're in inside industry super, you can almost certainly choose, firstly, the, the investment style. So you can go to a high growth rather than balanced, um, should you choose to, and that'll give you more exposure to shares, which should give you more volatility, but hopefully over time, a higher re- return. Most industry funds will let you invest 80% of your fund directly into shares yourself. You can choose the shares you invest in and the ETFs you invest in. So you can, inside the fund structure, still make some of your own decisions, which puts you in a pretty good place. So SMSF, if you want to, and you're keen, as Doc says, have a look at it. Depends on your account balance. If you're not or don't want to or not ready yet, just go back to your industry fund and find out what the individual options are. You think you'll be surprised and pleasantly surprised at how much control you can have over your investments and the way you can start to put some of that money to work. Anything else on that, Doc? No, sir. Beautiful. Let's move on to a question from AJ in Tasmania. How goes that, Tasmanian listener? I love Tasmania. I love Tasmania too. It's a lovely place. We love our Taswegian listeners. Uh, question says, hi, I'm a very amateur investor. And early on, I invested in ISX. Now, I signed this, as I recall. Is that right? ISX? Yeah, ISX. I signed this, yes. Everything was looking really good until, as you know, they got into a fight with the ISX. They are now considering delisting from the ASX and relisting it on a different exchange. And I believe in the AGM, this move was strongly supported. What happens next? Can I expect if they delist and relist that I will suddenly have shares on a different exchange that I'm not currently registered with? Am I able to register and trade through these platforms like I do with the rest of my Australian shares if I use Comsec? I'm just not sure where the shares will go and how I might manage them or if there are tax implications. Now, AJ, first thing is there were no tax implications on a change of exchange. Um, think of the exchange as, it's a very imprecise example, but let's, let's assume as the real estate agent, you, you ha- you're seller by your house through. Um, you still own the house. If you take, take away from Ray White and list it with LJ Hooker, take away from LJ Hooker and list it with Ray White, um, the way it gets sold, the mechanism that's used to buy or sell the shares or quote the price doesn't impact on the asset that you own. It may impact the price you get depending on how many buyers and sellers are at that exchange. If I started scottstockexchange.com, I dare say I'm not gonna have many buyers or sellers on that exchange. And so if I was trying to sell my shares on that exchange, I might assume that the buyers might be few and far between. So it might be harder to sell, you might get a different price, but there's no tax implication on the change because you own the shares, nobody else. Um, and your cost base is your cost base is your cost base. Similarly, what you sell it for, that determines it and the exchange doesn't really matter in that case. Uh, in terms of realistic on different exchange, look, I I find this a really ugly fight, frankly. I think, um, you know, someone who's had taken a combative approach to it, the regulator, is probably a, a difficult business to remain invested in because you just simply don't know well enough what's going on. Equally, I think they're actually not totally wrong in the way they've addressed some of the ASX's concerns relative to the lack of action the ASX taking with the big banks, for example, in similar circumstances. So it's a really, really messy circumstance. Um the last thing for me, and Doc, I'll ask you for your thoughts if you have any extra ones. We don't yet know if they will change, where they will go, um, what will be what will be involved, how it all works. So the honest answer right now, AJ, is I don't know the answer. I would far, far rather I sign this actually just get themselves in a position where 
the, the, the market operator and the regulator, ASIC, to the extent the ASIC's involved, were simply happier with the way things were being done. I think that's the best for everybody, quite frankly. Um, just give them the information they need. If, if that's the gold standard for information, then uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see the circumstance that requires I sign this to change exchange rather than simply come to terms with the way shares are bought and sold on the big boards in Australia. But that's, you know, that's just a personal view. Any thoughts on that, Doc? I really have nothing really to add to that. I mean, yeah. Um, so it's an ugly situation. And the, I'll just, the only thing I'll add is it's unclear to me that there'd be, a, you know, a company which is involved in a fight with, you know, a pretty big mm. exchange is going to be able to find another exchange, right? Maybe they can. It's just, it's easier to sort things out here than to transfer the registry to another place would be my guess. But I don't know much yeah. about the story. Yeah, it's, it's, it, uh, it will make it life harder for you as a shareholder either way. The problem is in the meantime, you may not have a choice, right? Because they may not really listen to the ASX. They may turn up immediately on the next exchange as you start. So see how you go from there. All right. A question, mate, from Paul. Paul says, Hi, Scott. Have been listening to your podcast and it is a recurring theme that you avoid margin loans. I feel like I'm going to get a wacky. Hang on. <laughs> Josh's story this week, and this was last week, prompted me to write, as I don't think you have presented a balanced view, point of view on them. I took out a margin loan in 2007 just prior to the GFC. It turned ugly for everyone then, not just for those who held margin loans. I went through a couple of margin calls and for selling. A few years later, I got back into the margin loan. I now have gone from 30000 to over $4 million thanks to the leverage of the margin loan. As my holdings increase, I also increase my loan amount. It is a comfortable 25 to 30% LVR or loan to valuation ratio. Now, for those who don't know, if it's 25% LVR, that means the debt is 25% of the asset value. If you've got $10,000 in shares, a 25% LVR would mean a loan of $2,500. So 25% of the price or the value of the shares. I'm now extracting a million dollars from the portfolio to buy a house, says Paul. Nearly everyone borrows money to buy a house, often at 60, 70 or 80% LVRs, then spends the rest of their life paying off the mortgage to provide themselves with shelter. This is thought to be okay and normal, but to me, this is a terrible use of money. There is no way in a single decade I could have built this wealth to enable me to buy a house without the margin loan facility. So in summary, you need to keep an open mind on margin loans. Like any investment, it needs to be managed. And if the person is not capable of managing their investments, then they shouldn't do it. But for those who are able to stay in a safe zone and not fly too close to the sun, a margin loan is an incredible tool to build wealth. Regards, Paul. It's a pretty spirited defense of the margin loan, Doc. What do you say? Um, yeah, well, okay. By and large, actually, I would agree with him. But like any, um, the couple of differences I would point out. One is a margin loan typically attracts a higher interest rate. So, I mean, if, if somebody gave me a margin loan at 2%, that's very different from somebody giving me a margin loan at 8%. Um, because then the gap required to perform is uh, significantly higher. Uh, that's number one. Number two is, um, I guess, I mean, there can be margin call on uh, on debt mm. as well. On your on, and you know, it's it's relatively uncommon, but it has happened mm. in the past. And but uh, you know, and similarly, margin calls can happen on um, on investment accounts. So I mean, he has a point there. I mean, if if you are managing it conservatively, then you can actually make it work as long as you're not paying too much in interest. Um, but if you're paying too much in interest relative to the gains you're making, then you have a, you've got a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like I, I mean, in principle, I think the reason we say no is um, 
the the chance that you like i mean the chance that you go you mess up and stuff gets sold yeah. automatically is pretty high yeah. uh, like no no i shouldn't say pretty high but the the cost that if that happens is pretty high because if you if your portfolio got automatically sold of stuff um mm. and the sold got sold at the wrong time then you basically have destroyed years of effort right and and that's the reason we we say but yeah if somebody knows how to use it maybe that's fine and mm-hmm. that's my viewpoint yeah i agree i look i think um so here's the thing here's the thing paul i have to say mate well done so congratulations um the problem we have overall is that um like anything any tool could be great any tool could be terrible use terribly use badly be very lucky very unlucky all those things can be true and the anecdote of one success or one failure shouldn't determine whether or not something is useful what it does do though is remind us that there are a massive range of outcomes for people and in, Paul, I'm sure you're a smart, sensible, thoughtful investor, and so this is not directed at you specifically. But you know, in in, in a parallel universe, you might have got to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars and lost a lot when the market crashed. So you know, the the, the hey, here's what I got to. I, I did well slash was you know did well and had some luck slash you know just a genius uh, may be true. Remember, of course, um, this is one I'm, I always want to go to. It's it's really miss. Um, Understood, Doc, and not very well remembered. There's a business called Long-Term Capital Management. It was a, a business in the US, hedge fund run by 12 Nobel laureates. Um, that's not that's not nothing, right? Well, I, I don't know where else you'd find 12 Nobel laureates in a room, but this, this business in the US had 12 Nobel laureates. And they had done all this risk analysis, all these models that told them what was going to happen, what wasn't going to happen, and they made a fortune, and made a fortune, and made a fortune, and made a fortune, and then lost the entire lot. Quite literally, the business went broke, dead broke. Um, and, and, you know... Despite all of the smarts, all of the abilities, all of the previous success, you only need to roll one zero and the whole thing goes to nothing, right? And so you know, how will you do up to any point? If you put yourself in a position where the wrong circumstances could take you to zero, then you're in a real world of hurt. And Paul, as you say, I, I, can't, I can't argue your stats. There are other people out there with the same experience and, and good luck to them, good on them. Overall, do I think it's a wise thing for people to do? No, I don't because the risk of that zero for unforeseen circumstances is not worth taking. If I get to 55 and have had 40 years of great, 35 years of great investing experience and I make one bad mistake that takes my portfolio to zero, I don't want to start again at 55. It's just not, it's not worth it. The risk return is simply not there. So Paul, get it. Uh, you, it's been successful for you. Fantastic. That's great. Um, no no argument, no no grief there. Mate, no, not even going to try and you know um, justify it or, or explain otherwise. Good luck. Well done. Really well done. What I worry about is that if the circumstances were, were reversed, and the marginal loan in 07, you got the margin calls for was actually this marginal call, margin loan, not the other margin loan. You might have had a margin call on a million dollars worth of shares. And if that was going to you know, wipe you out, then that's the sort of thing you really don't want to have to start again from zero at whatever age you end up at. So knock yourself out. I still believe very strongly that for most people, I would say everybody, because I think you don't know which one of those people you're going to be. For every Paul, there's a Jim or a Jeff or a Sally who's lost everything. Does Sally's loss justify Jim's gain or vice versa? Well, I don't know. But... What I do know is that I don't want any of our listeners to be in the position of finding themselves having to start again. All right, mate. This one's... I, I promised us a, um, a non-human question. Here it is. Scott and Doc, love the podcast. I learned so much from the two of you. I know you like to hear from female listeners, but what about dogs? Surely I'm not the only dog who is an avid listener of Motley Fool Money. Listening to your podcast is one of my favorite pastimes, especially when my humans go about their daily lives. They rely on me for their investment information as they are pretty busy. I have the following question for you. You previously mentioned in one of your recent pods 
that some of the main things you look for when assessing a company is a good business plan and quality management. This might be a silly question or super obvious, keep in mind I am a dog, but how do you know if a business plan is good and if management is quality? I hope you air my question as I would have felt I've made it in life. Spreading the word to all of my dog friends to tune in. Woof. Hashtag keep doc off Insta. It's a tough gig upholding an image online these days. Well, a dog would know, Doc. So maybe, maybe I've been wrong this entire time. I love the dog. <laughs> this is from Koji um, on Instagram. If you're going to be a dog on social media, it's got to be Instagram, right? I love it. <laughs> so I, thank you, Koji. Uh, our first dog question. I love it, Koji. Uh, thanks, mate, for the Koji, uh, for the for the wolf question. Um, I love it. Um, what can I say? Well, yeah, exactly. I think that's the appropriate start the, to this question. The, the, the appropriate start is really what can I say? Um, can you know is a business? Uh, so when you say business plan, I guess you know is mm. the business overall mm. uh, high quality and is the management high quality? Business model, yeah. Yeah. So business model. In effect, you can never say anything with 100% certainty. So the answer to that would be that you can't. Uh, like if, if it's a yes and no question, yep. the answer is no. Um, but you can look at execution. You can look at what's going on. You can look at, um, you, you know, so you can look at things like if the business says that there's a lot of market opportunity, um, then you would expect to see a lot of growth, mm. right? If there's a lot of market opportunity, but there's no growth, there's something, there's a mis, <laughs> there's a misfit right. uh, of some th- uh, of some form, right? You know, um, the dog loves the the bone, but the, you know, if the dog is not chewing the bone, there's something wrong. <laughs> so, so that's that sort of thing. Now, the same thing with management. Again, the management that says things that don't happen or are reg- regularly failing at what they project or how they think the business should execute, then that's a, a you know. Uh, that's a dig at the management team, so that you think it's not a, right. n- probably not a good management. Then over time, as so these are more for early stage businesses, but more and more uh, as the business evolves and becomes more mature, you want to see how um, a management is allocating capital, right? Mm-hmm. So capital allocation is a big deal. So you know you might have ten, you know, ten billion dollars uh, of cash available. What are you doing with it? Are you giving it back to your investors uh, or the owners of the company as a dividend? Are you investing it in, you know, to make acquisitions to and to grow your empire? If you're growing your empire, are you doing the right things? If you're making acquisitions, how much are you paying for those uh, acquisitions? Are you paying too much, right? Um, so all, you know, basically mm-hmm. how capital is being managed and whether or not it is in the long-term interest of the business is sort of what you can look at. Yeah, a lot nice. of these things are qualitative. Some of these things are quantitative. Um, and a lot of these things are evolutionary in the sense that, you know, you need to, you can't look at one snapshot in time. You have to look at over a period of snapshots in time mm. to sort of... Um, yeah, yeah right. Know, come yep. to an assessment. Yep. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's obviously the right question. Um, and I, uh, for what it's worth, a really good question for a dog. Um, I, I think the one thing I'd say is it's obviously a dog's obviously you can't know for sure. The other thing is that if it was that easy to everyone would already be doing it. And if you're st- picking stocks, you are looking for businesses that the rest of the market doesn't doesn't price as highly as you think they're worth by definition, right? So it was easy enough to do. Everyone would do it. And these are really hard questions. There are plenty of people out there who who do this investing gig. And they tell you how easy it is and how a formula can be used or a black box trading software because all you have to do is X, Y, and Z. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, and everything's you know everything's done. That's all you have to do, right? It's just, just literally put plug the numbers in, pay them a fortune, and it'll spit out a result and you can buy the stocks that no one else knows about. That's that's hard, right? It's really hard. It's why at The Motley Fool, we're right about six times out of 10, Doc, on average, give or take. Um, and we have to accept that. Like That's just the reality, right? So how can we know? We can't know for sure. 
even with the even with the best information, you can't know for sure. Because if we did, as I said, there'd be no opportunities to beat the market. In terms of so management, here's the thing: I look for candor, so honesty, um, upfrontness, um, track record. So uh, now be a little bit careful with management. I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of kind of management success. Kind of um, it's almost that. What are they? What are they? Um, Oh, I won't. I won't all get religious, but the idea of prosperity theology, right? The idea that you know, if if you just believe it, it's all going to go well. Um, a manager who's done well in one business, maybe is a genius, or maybe he's just in the right place at the right time. You know, it's it was hard not to make money. Uh, uh, you know, in some industries at certain times, just because the consumers were rushing out. You, you you couldn't you know you couldn't keep away with pitchforks, and so you know you can make money doing that. You could be so Alan Joyce, I reckon, is one of the best CEOs in the business in airlines. Terrible industry. So would I invest in your business? No, but you know, a really good, a really good manager in a tough industry versus someone who can be, you know, literally Warren Buffett's ham sandwich can run a business that has people throwing money at them because they just are. If you're if you're selling online, you know, products online the last three months, you don't have to be a genius to do well in that, right? And so there is going to be a question over time of which CEOs of, of public online companies have done well because people are just throwing money at them and which are genuinely really really good at their jobs. We'll see a whole lot of, you know, uh, articles written about these geniuses running online businesses and. You'd, you'd, you'd do well, we'd all do well, just to remember that some of that's just circumstantial. So be very, very careful. Uh, but track record in more than one industry or for a long period of time is a really, really good sign. Um, Mark Fitzgibbon at NIB is a guy I rate very highly. Alan Joyce, as I mentioned, even in a tough industry, his numbers don't say, this guy's a genius, he's made a fortune for everybody. But man, if you can keep an airline out of bankruptcy for a decade, <laughs> seriously, that's that's about as good as it gets when it comes to management quality. So you know, keep, keep that in, in mind. Um, but candor, honesty, um, ideally, if you can, a, a CEO who's either a founder who has a lot of their personal wealth invested in the company is a good sign they're there for the long term. They are really genuinely trying to improve things and, and make things great. Again, not always the case, but a good starting point and a good a good way to try and minimize the risks or at least you know put the odds further in your favor. Um, those are, those are probably the things I'm I'm looking for specifically. A uh, bit of humility is always good. I don't I desperately don't like arrogance in investors or management. So take that for for what it's worth. In terms of business model, to Doc's point, often success itself, uh, you know, it's it's. We talk about winners keep on winning. We talk about adding Doc, Doc in particular, about adding regularly to, to winning positions. Uh, it tends to be the case that businesses that are winning, doing well, are growing, aren't at the end of their growth. Sometimes they are, but often they are. They still have plenty to go. Right? If they, the results will tell you if they're doing something right. If you can get good profit levels, growing profits, growing sales, better, you know, consumer perception, more repeat purchase, depending on the product, depending on the customer or the company, that's a pretty good sign, right? And and if you have things like, and again, sustainable competitive advantage. We did a whole episode on moats, um, so I'm not sure if your humans let you listen to that one, Koji. But they, if they didn't, go back and check that one out. Um, you know, moats are controversial. We did talk a little bit about that in that episode. So take that, um, take that, you know, with a bit of grain of salt and have a think about how it applies. But man, if you've got a business with a great brand, I'd rather have a business with a great brand than one without a great brand. I'd rather have a business with a price um, advantage than one without one. I'd rather have a business with network effects than one without one. And so if you start to again add those things together and start to say, hang on, what is it about these businesses that helps them win? Are those things likely to continue? It's kind of not that hard. And I think I gotta say, you know, we got a question on on Twitter. Um, like we're not going to use part of mailbag, but someone said to me, "Oh, it's a doc and I." Basically, if, if companies, you know, if we just keep on winning, why doesn't it work in the funds management world? Part of the answer, honestly, is there's no, there's not a lot of sustainable competitive advantage in that world. You can continue to, you know, Apple can can bring in more customers over time, sell more products, charge more, charge a higher price. 
it's very hard as a fund manager to actually take those, make those kind of attributes work for you in the funds world, but it's really, really possible outside that. And so if Apple starts winning in 2005 and still winning in 2009 and still winning in 2013, still winning in 2018, you know, there's a pretty good chance they're going to keep on winning for a decent amount of time. And not forever. Eventually everyone hits, a, hits, a, hits a, a ceiling in terms of how big they can grow. Now, Apple might have 45 years left for all I know, but I, I, I've used the example before. Coke has lots of those competitive advantages, the market just isn't big enough for it to keep growing. So I, I made a mistake there because I went, how good is this business? Got all these things I love and they were all right. I, I think in hindsight, I still believe the, the analysis is right on those things. What it didn't allow for is there's not a lot of opportunity left for it to use those for growth. So if there's no growth coming, Doc's already mentioned the total market size. If you're already against the ceiling, then you want to be really, really careful. So hopefully that kind of helps. Um, there is no single playbook, right? If we had one, Either we'd be billionaires or we'd be selling it or everyone would know it. And in any of those cases, we wouldn't be here. Um, so we have to acknowledge we're accepting volatility and uncertainty. But those are the sorts of things from a management and business model level I'm looking for when I'm picking my stocks. Um, and Doc's already given you his answers. Any more on that, Doc, after my ramble? No, I think your ramble is spot on. <laughs> I think it was a – was that a uh, bit of damning with faint praise then? No, a, yeah. it, was, it was spot on, but it was still a ramble. Oh, what was it? You <laughs> called it a ramble. I, I agreed with it. Today was like I, loaded, I loaded the gun. Just, I've just agreed with I everything. I loaded the gun. And yeah, and, and yeah, I think it's spot on. Now, speaking of picking good companies, I run Motley Fool Share Advisor. Doc runs Extreme Opportunities. We talked about him on Friday, so I'm going to talk about me today because, hey, sometimes I just want to talk about me. Uh, you can join Share Advisor really easily and pretty cheaply. Not quite as cheap as EO, but pretty cheap. Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Less than a cup of coffee a week, which frankly, again, if you can, uh, you know, no promises, no guarantees. We are beating the market. We're pretty happy with that. Though we're never satisfied. We're always trying to do better and better. But if you can make a couple of dollars a week out of your investments that you're investing alongside the advice we give you, I reckon that'll more than pay for its membership, hopefully. Again, no guarantees. The future is unknown, as we just finished saying. But if you want to find some of the better medium and large cap companies on the ASX, and by the way, we do a US recommendation every month too. We've talked a lot about US investing, so that's one way to get yourself some US recommendations, plus, as I said, some market-beating ASX recommendations. Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. I run Share Advisor with our foolish colleague, Andrew Leggett, who is a gun, um, and we have a lot of fun. We have a, a good time putting out some more content and a lot of great recommendations that I think hopefully we'll continue to do and hopefully you will benefit from. So fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast for a very special podcast price on joining Share Advisor. Before we go, mate, we want more mailbag questions. So listeners, dear listeners, please give us some feedback, suggestions, and preferably for this particular type of episode, some more questions. Now, Doc, I will say, here's a, uh, a couple of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow our own trumpet for a second, or I'm going to let other people blow our trumpet. I just went to the podcast page, and I'm always a bit scared to do that, but we got a five-star review from Zoom85 most recently, who said, only time for one, this is the podcast to listen to. That's very kind. Thank you, Zoom85. I won't read the rest of it, because frankly, Listeners already are listening, so they don't need to be told how good we are. Uh, but I appreciate it. Thank you. We got great advice and discussion from C Widow and no BS investment advice from Darwin Salty. So um, thank you, fools, for uh, giving us some positive feedback. We really do appreciate it. Um, we'll assume it's genuine and legitimate. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you for um, giving us some good feedback because we do this for, for effectively nothing. Uh, we should get paid by the boss, but not for doing this particular podcast. So we appreciate all of the feedback and suggestions. Hit us up, info at fool.com.au is our email address if you're an email kind of person. If you're a social kind of person, we'll get Doc on Instagram soon. We'll start with Twitter this time because Doc's there, at Anirban Mahanti. Get him on Twitter. He's, he's good on Twitter. You want to follow Doc. Uh, you can follow me too, at TMF Scott P. 
And The Motley Fool's account is at The Motley Fool AU. Give us a follow. Come and have a chat. We love interacting with our listeners. If you're on Instagram, as all the cool kids are, if you're taking photos of smashed avo breakfasts, then you want to hit me up at TMF Scott P again or The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're a Facebook kind of person and who isn't, well, other than Doc, you can go to at The Motley Fool Australia on Facebook or Scott Phillips Money. All right, mate, that's it. We're done for this Sunday, this weekend. Hopefully it's a good one if you're enjoying your weekend. Stay safe, Melbourne. Stay safe, Sydney and Adelaide, Brisbane too, I should say. Um, do the right thing, guys. Just keep your, wash your hands, stay distant, put your mask on if you need to. Um, we will beat this thing if we all work together, but you're going to have to put a bit of effort in. So uh, please do that. Stay safe. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And of course, do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app or the Podcast One app. And if you like what we're doing, please do what Zoom 85, see Widow and Darwin Salty did. Tell your friends, tell strangers, right at the sky or at least leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Who couldn't use a bit of foolishness in their lives? That's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back on Tuesday with some money hacks and a bit of more foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.